Well, good morning. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3 are our text uh, this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to use a physical uh, paper copy of the Scriptures, uh, you'll find a Bible on the rack in the pew in front of you or maybe uh, beneath you if you're in a, in a chair. And uh, you'll find the book of Acts on page 909 of that copy of the Scripture. Um, what we were doing today just now is a glorious thing, isn't it? I mean, to be uh, blending our voices and our hearts together in praise to God, this is what the church does. Now, let me just remind you, too, that the church is not just an event. Although we come here as an event, yet what happens here is just the overflow of who we are as a church, that is, the people of God. A family, like a family gathers around the dinner table. The gathering around the dinner table is not the family, but that's what families do, right? And, and so I encourage you to view this church as more than just this event of gathering at this time, but it's something that we do all throughout the week. We're connected with one another, but when we come here together, man, we love joining our voices together to praise our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We exist to exalt Him. That's why we exist as a church. We exist to help other people see how great He is. It's not our purpose to bring attention to ourselves, but to bring our attention to our, our great Christ, our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who speaks through His Word. And that's why we spend such a significant portion of our gatherings. We open the Bible because this is the Word of God to explain it so that we can realize that this is not just the words of men. This is not the, just the words of a man. This is the Word of God. He's speaking to us today. He's calling us to faith and trust in Him. So our text this morning is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I'll read that and we'll jump right into our message. Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is God's word. You'll notice that Luke addresses this book to a man named Theophilus, and he also addressed his first volume, which is the, the gospel that bears the name of Luke, also to Theophilus. Now, we don't know much about Theophilus other than the guests that he was a Roman official, probably a wealthy Roman official. He could have even been the one that sponsored uh, the writing and the publication of, of Luke Acts because it was, as you know, book writing was a very expensive process uh, in those days. But what we do know is very interesting from the beginning of Luke, actually Luke chapter 1 and verse 4. You don't need to turn there, uh, but Luke chapter 1 and verse 4, Luke gives an added detail about this man we know as Theophilus. And this, that detail is that Theophilus had been taught some things about Christianity, but he lacked certainty about Christianity. He had learned some things, but he needed what he learned, what he had knew, he needed it to be strengthened. He needed a more certain knowledge is the way that the English Standard Version renders it. And so I think in that respect, we can all say that we find ourselves very much in the position of Theophilus. 
whether, whether you're a child here today, whether you uh, are, are in kindergarten or whether you are in grade school or whether you are a trained theologian, and anywhere between, all of us could stand to have some more certain knowledge about the things of the Christian faith. This word that's translated in Luke chapter 1 verse 4, uh, have certainty regarding, it's the idea of, of knowing with experiential competence. It's kind of like when I open the hood of my car, people are already starting to laugh. <laughs> I, I'm looking at stuff, but I don't know what I'm looking at. I, I know that I'm seeing something, but I'm not looking at it with experiential competence. A mechanic, however, opens the hood of a car and looks with, with competence, right? There's, there's, a, there's a, a deeper understanding of that engine. Or, or you could put it this way, the kind of knowledge that we need about the Christian faith is kind of like the difference between merely knowing that the burger we're about to eat is delicious and juicy, just knowing it and actually knowing it because we've sunk our teeth into it and we're tasting it, all right? It's the difference. It's an experiential knowledge. So what, what Luke is saying here is saying this, Theophilus, you know some things about Christianity, but do you really know them? And that's why he writes Luke and Acts. He writes them so that we would not only have the facts, but that we'd have a, a more competent, experiential knowledge about the facts of Christianity. And I would say that there is perhaps no more urgent matter facing us today than this. What is Christianity all about? If someone were to ask you, what is Christianity all about? Would you prepare to be prepared to give them a concise answer from the Bible? I think this matter has made all the more the urgent as we look at statistics about religion and Christianity right here in the state of New Hampshire. If you look at, uh, at some of these, these uh, surveys and polls, as I looked, double-checked this morning, New Hampshire ranks number 50 out of 50 states according to uh, the re religiosity, whatever that means, how religious a particular state is. New Hampshire, based upon a number of factors, New Hampshire ranks, ranks at the very bottom. Only 22% of New Hampshireites attend church on a weekly basis. Maybe that number is higher than you would expect. 34%, only 34% of New Hampshireites say that they are sure that there is a God. You see, we don't live in a culture that is saturated with an understanding of Christianity. We, we live in a culture, we're surrounded in a culture that is, is not certain about the things of Christianity. And then that matter is even intensified when we look at ourselves. Okay, do we understand ourselves, those of us who do attend church regularly, who do believe in the existence of God, who do consider ourselves to have faith, do we understand what Christianity is all about? And so when Luke opens this second volume to Theophilus, this educated Roman official, probably wealthy, he wanted him to have a brief survey, an introduction to what Christianity is all about. And so he gives this, he sketches the major truths about the Christian faith in the first three verses. And so we can consider verses one through three of Acts chapter one to be answering this question, what's Christianity about? What's Christianity all about? And we're going to see primarily two, two parts to the answer. The first is that Christianity is all about a kingdom and Christianity is all about the king. Christianity is all about a kingdom, and Christianity is about the king. I want you to look at the text here. You notice that, that Luke centers on all that, look at verse 1 of chapter 1, all that Jesus began to do and teach. It's easy for us to miss the fact 
that for all the things that we may have learned about Christianity, at the core of Christianity is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's at the very core. A lot of people think that Christianity is a certain approach to life, a certain list of rules of do's and don'ts. You don't do these things, and you do these things, and you're a Christian, or a certain way of voting, or a certain uh, position yourself on the political spectrum, or maybe perhaps aligning yourself historically with certain religious traditions. But that's not it at all. When we go to the Bible and find out what is Christianity all about, we see it's all about a person, and His name is Jesus Christ. All that Jesus began to do and to teach. Well, what did Jesus begin to teach? Well, we, we see it right here in verse 3. He was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. So, first of all, let's look at this, this idea that, that Christianity is about a kingdom. Christianity is about a kingdom. Well, you might not think that this is a very important topic uh, because it, it seems to be mentioned quite in passing near the beginning of the book of Acts, this idea of a kingdom. But, and it only, the, the word kingdom of God only re- is, occurs eight times in the book of Acts. And you're thinking, okay, 28 chapters, only eight times, is that really that big of a theme? The importance of the theme of the kingdom of God is seen not necessarily how many times it occurs, but the strategic placement of its occurrences. So if you're in chapter 1 of verse 3, you see kingdom of God. You see that the book of Acts begins with teaching about the kingdom of God, but flip all the way to the end of the book of Acts. Look at chapter 28 and verse 31. Acts begins with Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. Jesus in Jerusalem, in the very heart of the place where this movement began. But the book of Acts ends hundreds of miles away with the Apostle Paul in the city of Rome, and he's still teaching about what? Verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. So from beginning to to the end of Acts, we find this theme, the kingdom of God. Now, if you think that this is just an Acts thing, you're like, okay, Pastor Jonathan, what about the rest of the New Testament? Let me just uh, click through a few references with you. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17 is a reference that we're familiar with if you were with us for the series through the Sermon on the Mount. And that is where Jesus comes beginning His earthly ministry, and He's proclaiming this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We find the same thing in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, where Mark says that Jesus begins his ministry and he's saying this, the kingdom of God has drawn near, so repent. And not only is it in Matthew and Mark, but also in Luke, in chapter 4, Jesus says, there are other villages that I must go to and preach the good news about the kingdom because that's why I was sent. When Jesus wanted to summarize his teaching ministry, what did he use to summarize it? What words did he use? He said, it's all about this. It's all about a kingdom. It's about the kingdom of God. Jesus taught about it. His disciples later on would preach on it. Paul is in Rome. The book of Acts ends with this teaching about the kingdom of God. Okay, you're like, okay, I got that. Christianity is is all about the kingdom. what's, What's the significance of this now? Well, a kingdom, what is a kingdom? A kingdom is... Think about it as the, the realm and the rules and the ruler under which human beings live. So anywhere people live, the rules by which they live, and the ruler or rulers under which they live, that's their kingdom. And everybody needs a kingdom. Everybody lives in a kingdom. 
you're thinking in kingdom terms, even though you're not using this term, when, whenever you think like this. If I could just change one thing about the American government, I would change this. That, what are you thinking? You're thinking about a kingdom. You're thinking about how to have a better kingdom. Uh, or maybe you're, you're, uh, you're a, a child here. You're in school, and you're like, if I can just make one rule or subtract one rule from school, what would it be to make things better for me, more fun for me, more enjoyable for me? You're thinking about in kingdom terms, how I operate, how can I, can I thrive, how can I flourish, how can things be better? It's the system that we live in, it's the, the people that we live with, it's the rules, it's the way things work in this world, that's, that's a kingdom. And, and as, you, as you begin to think about this, you realize, yeah, yeah in a sense, my, my family is kind of a kingdom. There's kind of a, a kingdom at work. There's kind of unofficial rules. There's a way things, there's a way to get ahead. There's a way to get behind. There's a kind of way to, to posture yourself if you want to advance. There's kind of, at my school, there's kind of a kingdom. There's, there's the people that are in charge and the people who aren't in charge. And there's, there's the rules and there's, there's the stated rules and the unstated rules. This is a kingdom. This is the way life works. There's a kingdom in, in our state, in our city. There's all kinds of city, kingdoms. And if you begin to think about it even more, you realize that everybody has a different idea about what the kingdom should be. I've said this before, but it, it happens in a home. Dad's kingdom he comes in from home from work, and he has his way about what the evening will be like, an evening of relaxation. And the kids come in the living room, and they have their own idea about what the kingdom will look like. And it's a kingdom of fun and noise and excitement. And pretty soon, dad's kingdom and kid's kingdom come into conflict, and there's a clash of kingdoms. You see how that works? It happens with egos at, 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 in, your, in your job, at work. It happens all over the place. This is a kingdom. A kingdom, you realize, is is a place when you, you begin to uh, learn how a kingdom works when, when you are in a place where you're like, oh, so this is how to get ahead. This, uh, these are the consequences for not following the protocol. Have you discovered much about the kingdom you live in? Perhaps it's a world won by flattery, power, and position. It's not what you know, it's who you know that helps you get ahead. It's might that makes right. Oh, we all know what this is like. That's why when Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God, there's a great deal of excitement. Oh, the kingdom of God has arrived. And when Jesus says when the kingdom of God has arrived, the people have all kinds of ideas about what that kingdom would be. In fact, his followers, his own followers were so confused the entire time, the entire three years Jesus was teaching them parable after parable, teaching after teaching. They were so confused about what the kingdom is. How do we know they're confused? Well, they kept on asking questions like this. Jesus, by the way, when your kingdom comes, can, can, uh, can I sit right next to your throne on this side and maybe my brother can sit right next to your throne on this side when, when you come in your kingdom? And actually, it, it's, it's, it's evident that James and John got their mom to ask Jesus that in their place. He, he, she, she said, I, I have a favor to ask of you. And Jesus says, okay, what is it? Can my son sit like side by side by you? What kind of kingdom were they thinking about? A kingdom in which the prize is position, in which the greatest problem is other people, and which the process is getting to the top. 
They would argue about among themselves. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and, and, and Jesus overhears, they're arguing. They're saying, actually, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. <laughs> Peter, seriously? No, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. No way. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Why? Because in their mind, the prize of the kingdom is prestige, and the problem is just other people getting the people uh, in their proper places, and the process is just to get to the top at any cost. Do we kind of live in that sort of world? When Jesus says the kingdom of God has come, it produced a lot of confusion right up until the time that he ascended to heaven. Look at verse 6 of chapter of Acts chapter 1. Notice that the disciples are still asking about the kingdom. They said when they had come together, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you now going to throw off Roman Empire, so that we could be finally free and the, and the proud nation that we once were. There's all kinds of ideas about the kingdom. And that's why it was so confusing when the person they thought would be the king died. All this anticipation about the kingdom of God, and Jesus keeps on dropping this hints. He's saying, he's saying things like this. Yeah, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer many things, and, and I'm going to die. In fact, when he came into Jerusalem, he did not come riding on a horse that would be a, a, a military type of, of uh, a display of military victory. What did he come riding on? A donkey. A donkey. What is, he, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I'm not coming in with a show of force and military power. I'm coming in humbly. But that's not the kind of king they were expecting. And so when Jesus finally hung on a cross, the most shameful form of execution imaginable, a way of absolutely pulverizing someone's personality and destroying them and demonstrating them as an example of what happens when someone rebels against the Roman Empire, his, his followers left utterly bewildered and perplexed. This is not the kingdom that we were hoping for. This is not the kind of king that we were expecting. You see, Christianity is about a kingdom, but it is a kingdom that utterly defies everything we have ever thought about the way kingdoms work. And that's why we go on to explain that Christianity is not only about a kingdom, Christianity is about the king and how he comes to reign. You see, Jesus was bringing in a kingdom in a way that totally defied everyone's expectations. Notice Luke says... Uh, names three stages in the work of this king. In verse 3, it says he presented himself alive to them. That is, Jesus, he speaks of Jesus' resurrection. And then he says, after his suffering, what is he referring to there? His suffering is his death. And then in verse 2, he refers to the time that he's taken up. These three stages, these three events are Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension. The way that King Jesus brings in his kingdom is not by crushing his enemies, is not by coming in. You see, when G Jesus says the kingdom of God is going to come, everybody had all kinds of expectations, but Jesus knew that if the kingdom of God truly came, if God's rule came into people's lives, they would absolutely crush them. Because God, as we sing about, is a holy God. 
And everyone in this world has a bent, crooked heart, and we're all wandering our own way, and no one can, can please God. No one can satisfy the holy standards of God. Jesus knew that if the kingdom of God were to just come down to the earth, it would absolutely crush people. Jesus comes to bring the kingdom of God not by crushing people, but by being crushed for people. That's how he brings the kingdom in. Because Jesus, Jesus knew that the biggest problem that people face is not the problem of politics, not the problem of education, it's not the problem, the little bickerings that go on in families, and it, those are all fruits of the problem. You see, we think that the very best thing that a human ruler can do is to try to legislate, to try to hack at the, the fruits of the problem, but the true root is a problem that has grown in the hearts of each of us, and that is the problem of sin. Jesus came to defeat the very heart of the problem, and that is sin itself. By bearing the punishment for sin itself, that's how the king reigns. That's how he brings in the kingdom. You see, the Christian faith is not about us and what we must do to get into the kingdom. It is about King Jesus and what he has done to bring us into the kingdom. I want to say that again. The Christian faith is not about what we must do to get into the kingdom. It's about what Jesus has done to bring us into the kingdom. That's why the message, the good news about the kingdom is not reform, clean up your act. It is this, the kingdom has come, so believe it, so repent, so turn toward it. See, you, the people in Jesus' day thought they had to do a lot of stuff to bring the kingdom. Jesus is saying, it's here. I've brought the kingdom. And so often we get confused about that. We think that Christianity is a matter of what we must do to get into God's favor. In fact, it's the very opposite. It's what God has done for us to bring us to Himself because Jesus knows that the greatest need of every human life is to be made right with God and that the greatest problem is sin and that the process is Jesus, the Son of God, bearing the penalty for our sin. That's the message of Christianity. Christianity is all about a kingdom. It's about the kingdom of God, but it's about the king and how he brings that kingdom in. The good news is the kingdom has come, and our response should be to repent and believe. Now, I, I said there's these stages in the work of Christ, the king. There is his death, his death for sins. There is his resurrection, his proof that those, that death was not for his own sin, but for our sin. But there's also something that we often overlook, and that's the ascension, the ascension. You know, we have, uh, we celebrate Christmas. What do we celebrate at Christmas time? The birth of Christ. And then later on, we have, uh, we have Good Friday. What do we celebrate at Good Friday? The death of Christ. And then the following Sunday, we have Easter Sunday. What do we celebrate at Easter Sunday? It's, it's not eggs and bunnies. It's the resurrection of Christ, right? Christ rose from the dead. But, but we typically don't celebrate a holiday dealing with the ascension, you know, this is the most overlooked event, a stage in the work of Christ. Think of the ascension this way. If you look at verse 8, actually, if you look at verse 10 of Acts 1, uh, they were gazing up into heaven. Why were they gazing up into heaven? Because Jesus had been lifted up out of their sight. This is a very important moment. This is the moment 
of Jesus' enthronement as king. You see, what was happening here is Jesus was, he was going out outside the view of his followers so that he could be enthroned and from his place of authority at the right hand of the Father, he could dispense the benefits of his death and resurrection. That, that was the place from which Jesus could pour out the Holy Spirit on all who believe in Jesus. Jesus' ascension is the day of his enthronement. It is the day of his coronation. It's his installation as king having finished the work of our salvation. You know, this is an amazing thought to ponder. In John chapter, uh, in, in, in the upper room discourse in John chapter 14, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I'm going to go away. Now he said, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now consider this. If you can choose between being here right now this morning at 10.50 on a Sunday morning or being with Jesus at the Last Supper, which would you choose? You know, most of us would probably immediately say, well, I would choose to be with Jesus. Physically, in his, in his time on earth. But Jesus said, it's actually better for you that I go away. Now, how could that possibly be? I mean, if we were to take at face value what Jesus said, then we should choose to be right here, right now on a Sunday morning than to be with Jesus in his physical presence at the Last Supper. Why is that? Jesus, it's, it's to your advantage that, go, that I go away. Why? Because when I go away, I'm going to send to you the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he'll always be with you. You know, when Jesus was on earth, his presence was localized. He was only in one place at one time. But now because Jesus has ascended to heaven and pours out his spirit in all who believe on him, Jesus can say in Matthew chapter 28, verses 27 through 20, uh, verses, I think, 18 through 20, he says, all authority has been given to me. And so I can be with you always for all time to every part of the earth. You see, when he was on earth, Jesus' presence was, was specific and it was localized. But now for those who believe in Jesus, Jesus, who is the all-authoritative, ascended king, says, I am with you and I'm never going to leave you. That's the kind of king we have. We have a king who loves us so much that he died for us. He's so powerful that he defeated death. And he's so authoritative, he could send his spirit in you to be with you forever. Now, let me ask you this question. What better king could you ask for? My friends, what better king could you ask for? You might say, well, I don't need a king. Of course you do. Everybody does. Everybody serves something or someone. What better king could you ask for than a king who has such power. He doesn't just make laws against sin. He attacks the root of sin itself. He doesn't just try to extend life. No, he conquers death. That's powerful. You need a king who is powerful, and you have such a king in Jesus. What better king could you ask for? You, you need a king not only who's powerful, you need a king who knows you. One of the complaints that we have children have about parents and parents have about their government and workers have about their bosses is they just don't understand. They just don't know me. You know what? Jesus knows you because he's experienced the very things that you experience. 
Jesus knows you. You need a king who knows you. Who could, what better king could you ask for than Jesus who knows you better than anybody else? You say, well, that's kind of scary. Yes, it is. Do you know why a lot of people don't like to look in the mirror? Do you know why a lot of people don't like to actually see how much, where their time goes? Do you know why a lot of people don't like to see where their money is really going? Do you know why a lot of people don't like to hear themselves talk or read about the things they said? It's because we're afraid that if we see the face in the mirror or we see really our time expenditure or we see how we spend our money or we see what we've been saying, we won't love ourselves. We'll hate ourselves. We're afraid with what, about what we're going to see. Are you afraid of yourself? My friend, Jesus knows all that about you and more and still loves you. What better king could you ask for? Jesus is not just closing a blind eye to your sin. He's not just saying, well, I'm going to try to love you despite all those ugly things. No, he's saying, I'm dying for you to save you from your sin, to make you clean. What better king could you ask for? What better king could you need? What better king than a king that has defeated death on your behalf, that knows you like nobody else and yet still loves you and proves his love for you by dying on the cross for you and rising again from the dead? That's our king, Jesus. That's what Christianity is all about. It's about his kingdom, and it's about the way that he brings that kingdom by conquering death. That's our king, Jesus. You need a king with power. You need a king who knows you. You need a king who, having known you, still loves you. I want to ask you this final question. I asked you, what better king could you ask for? I hope the answer is obvious. But finally this, is this king ruling your life? Is this king ruling your life? I've tried as best I can to put Jesus on display before you. I hope you've seen that. I hope he's in your heart and mind has been more exalted than, than he was when you first came in. I hope you've seen new dimensions to your, your, your Lord Jesus Christ. But the question that you need to ask now, you need to ask this yourself honestly in the, in, in, with full authenticity, is King Jesus, is he ruling your life? And let me just flesh this out for, for you a little bit. If Jesus is ruling your life, that means that you can have all the confidence in the world without any pride at all. How can you have all the confidence in the world? <laughs> because the most authoritative supreme king of the world is with you. And yet because he's with you, that doesn't serve to inflate your ego, that serves to give you humility. You can have confidence without pride. You don't have, the reason why people are harsh and brash with each other is because they're insecure. But if you know that Jesus is with you and he's your king, you can have confidence without pride. You can have a sense of, of, of humility when you speak with other people. When, when, when expressing your, your, uh, your affection for other people, you can do it confidently because you know that Jesus' love for you will never go away. If Jesus is ruling your life, not only can you have confidence without pride, but you can have humility without despair. You know, so often we, we think in terms of a humble person being somebody that just, uh, they just hate themselves. They're just always talking about how bad they are or how incompetent they are. You know what? That's not true humility. That's just another form of pride. But if you know that Jesus is your king, you know that he loves you, and you can have all the humility in the world without an ounce of self-loathing or despair. If Jesus 
is ruling your life. If Jesus is your king, if he's ruling your life, that means you can pursue holiness without being harsh. A lot of people think that the holier you are, the, the more pure you are, then the harsher you'll be, then the, then the more judgmental you'll be. That's not it at all. If you know that you've been forgiven by King Jesus, if you know that he shed his blood on, your, on the cross for your sins, you won't want to have anything more to do with sin, including the sin of pride and harshness. <laughs> you see? You see how if you let Jesus rule your life, what, what, what paradoxical qualities you'll have present within, your, within yourself, not because you're looking to yourself, but because you're looking to King Jesus. And finally, if you're looking to King Jesus, if you're letting him rule your life, it means that you can love without fear. It means you can love without fear. You know one reason why we, we withhold love from other people, why we close our hearts to other people is because we're afraid they won't give it back in return. We're so insecure about our love. But if you know that you have been loved by one who could not, you could not be loved more than the love that Jesus has shown you. You could not be loved more than, than the love that's been demonstrated by one who knows you, yes, warts and all, and still died on the cross for you. So you can love other people without fearing anything. They may never love you back. They may never say a kind word. You may never get the compliments you're hoping for. That's not what you're going for anyway. You're loving out of the fullness of the love that Jesus has loved you. That's what happens when King Jesus comes to a person's life. It's total transformation being confronted by King Jesus. That's what Christianity is all about. It's all about a kingdom. And that kingdom is ruled by King Jesus. Would you bow your heads? Take a moment to think and pray. Take a moment especially to consider whether you have trusted in this king to save you from your sin. You see how he doesn't coerce you? He doesn't threaten you? It's his love that draws you. It's his power demonstrated in his love. If you've not trusted in him, my friend, you must. That is the call of the gospel. It's the good news that requires a response from you. If you've never done that, my friend, that is your most urgent need today. Don't, don't put it off. Don't, don't even think, just because maybe everybody thinks that you're a good person, you're, that you're a Christian, you realize, I didn't even know this was what Christianity is about. I thought it was all about what I was supposed to do for God, and I'm hearing for the first time, no, it's what God has done for me and Jesus. Th then trust that and believe it. And as, as soon as you do, tell somebody about it. When you believe the heart of Christianity, it makes you like a, a kid on your birthday. You want everybody to know about it. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, my friend, would you think just a, a little more, as a believer in Christ, is Jesus king of your life? Or is there some area of the domain of your heart that you need to let him conquer by his love? Our Father, I pray that you would use your word applied to our hearts to change us and to make us more like Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.